When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. I love that Moroni sees himself here. It's the experience that each of us is supposed to have with this tour of the Faith Hall of Fame. We're supposed to see right before the exit that there is space for our exhibit as well. Will you and I ever be installed in that Hall of Fame? Will we believe first so that afterwards miracles can take place? in our lives and the lives of those that we serve. Therefore, the Lord hath commanded us to do things too. And all of that to do will come because of our to believe, our faith in Jesus Christ. Now at this moment of recognition, of realization, he's staring into the glass of this empty display case and he sees not through the glass anymore, but all of a sudden his reflection in the glass. And here Moroni has something of an identity crisis. He kind of freaks out here going, I don't belong in the hall of fame. I know all these stories. Trust me, I was raised on them. Every time I'd go into my dad's office, he was always working on scripture. I may have lived at the tail end of my civilization with no flesh and blood backup, but I had a band of brothers from a thousand years of Nephite history, and I knew I could not hold a candle to them. Remember, it's Moroni that talks about imperfections more than anyone else I can detect in the Book of Mormon. In Mormon 8.12, whoso receiveth this record and shall not condemn it because of the imperfections which are in it. Mormon 8.17, if there be faults, they be the faults of a man. Mormon 9.31, condemn me not because of mine imperfection, neither my father because of his imperfection, neither them who have written before him, but rather give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections, that ye may learn to be more wise than we have been. Mormon 9.33, if we could have written in Hebrew, behold, ye would have had no imperfection in our record. And as he writes the final lines on the title page of the book before he buries it in the hill Cumorah. And now if there are faults, they are the mistakes of men. All of those come from Moroni's pen. He is concerned about his own weakness. He is facing his own inadequacy here. I don't belong here. There's no way I can be part of the Faith Hall of Fame. Like I said, in verse 22, he realizes that their faith is writing on his works and he does not want to be the weak link in the chain. You sense that in verse 23 where he says unto the Lord, he interrupts, it's just shocking to see the tour guide all of a sudden kind of drop the microphone he's been speaking into and stare up into the heavens and say, Lord, I can't do this. The Gentiles will mock at these things. 
because of our weakness in writing. And you know what? He was right. I read every newspaper article I could find between 1829 and 1844 throughout the United States, anyone that mentioned the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And you know what surprised me as the one most common theme throughout them all? It was mockery. They ridiculed the story of the Book of Mormon, start to finish. Some farm boy finding a gold Bible in the hillside in New York, looking at it through stone spectacles and trying to interpret languages that nobody's heard of before. Are you kidding me? Even worse, because Joseph Smith himself was so uneducated, he was no grammarian, that when the language first came out of his lips, it came across pretty rough. The Lord said it would be that way, that he speaks to men according to their language, that they might come to an understanding. Well, Joseph's language was never very polished. Some Gentiles mocked the Book of Mormon on those grounds, saying, oh, well, if it was written in Reformed Egyptian, I hope the angel had a better grip on Egyptian than he did on English. Because old Joe Smith should have consulted more than just a gold Bible. He should have consulted a Webster's Dictionary. That, after all, was hot off the presses just two years before the Book of Mormon was. But they mocked, they ridiculed, they laughed it to scorn. It's interesting that even in the Doctrine and Covenants, when it was beginning to get to a point where the saints wanted copies of their own. And so this uh, conference assembles in 1831 and they decide, what are we going to do with these? They ask Heavenly Father, should we publish this as a book of revelations for the saints? And the Lord gives them a resounding yes. But even with that, the more educated among them were a little concerned about some of Joseph's phraseology as they saw it. The Lord calls them out for that in section 67. He says, your eyes have been upon my servant Joseph Smith Jr. and his language you have known and his imperfections you have known. And you've sought in your hearts knowledge that you might express beyond his language. This you also know. Talk about getting taken to task. There's the Lord calling him out. There seemed to be a level of embarrassment even among some of them over Joseph's weakness, his imperfection in language. Moroni understands that so perfectly. And Joseph Smith himself wrestled with it as well. A year after that experience with the Book of Commandments, the Doctrine and Covenants, I don't know if he's still smarting from that experience or still feeling inadequate in his own language, but he writes a letter to W.W. Phelps, who was a wordsmith extraordinaire, an editor of the newspaper, a lyricist of many of our most powerful hymns, a poet, a writer. He was incredible with language. And Joseph himself was not. But he writes in this letter, O Lord God, deliver us in thy due time from the little narrow prison, almost as it were, total darkness of paper, pen, and ink, and a crooked, broken, scattered, and imperfect language. Get a sense that Joseph is just wrestling with, I can't do justice to the truths of God. Taking divinity down to humanity, something is always lost in translation. And Joseph has seen his own weakness and his own battle against the crooked, narrow prison of English as one who was never an expert in the subject. It's interesting that right before that sentence in the letter, I had heard that before and always loved that statement. But as I looked at the letter itself, right before he said that, this is what he said to his friend William. Oh, Lord. When will the time come when brother William thy servant and myself behold the day 
that we may stand together and gaze upon eternal wisdom engraven upon the heavens. You see where he wanted to see it? I don't want to see it written in words. I want to see it engraven upon the heavens. I'm a visionary, not an English major, a prophet, not a penman. He went on, while the majesty of our God holdeth up the dark curtain until we may read the sound of eternity to the fullness and satisfaction of our immortal souls. Did you catch that? He wanted to read, but he wanted to read the sound of eternity. This is the same Joseph that near the end of his life said that what's written in the scripture are just hints of what existed in the prophet's mind. How do you convey those hints into someone else's understanding? How do you take consciousness to consciousness when it has to pass through communication on the way? That's why Joseph always seemed to just pray for spirit to spirit communication so that my words don't get in the way of things. I want you to have these experiences for yourself. Don't confine us both to this narrow prison of human language. If any of you served a foreign speaking mission, I'll bet you felt this keenly, especially at the beginning. My sister is a wordsmith along the lines of W.W. Phelps. She always knows just what to say, and she says it beautifully. She was an editor for a national magazine after college. She's just really, really good with words. And she got called on a mission, Spanish speaking. And she told me later it was one of the most humbling experiences of her life to find herself in Venezuela trying to convey an understanding of the gospel which was incredible through a language that in her mouth was still juvenile. She said, even when I became fluent, it was like, I've been reduced to like a second grade vocabulary. I found myself doing the same thing once I realized that, because I was feeling pretty, pretty proud of myself. Like, man, I'm good at Spanish now that I've been serving for a while. Until I realized, wait, translate it back into English and hear what you're saying. It may be coming out smoothly. Sure, you're fluent, but you're still not very educated. You're no Cervantes. <laughs> this is first grader. This is, I feel good about these things. I like the Book of Mormon. The church is good. It was so childish. Actually, it was so childlike. The Lord more than made up for it. But you get a sense of this. The Gentiles will mock at these things because of our weakness in writing. I cannot do justice to the things of God. He then says this, the end of 23 and into 24. It's amazing the phrase that keeps getting repeated. For Lord, thou hast made us mighty in word by faith. So faith is still the core even there. But thou hast not made us mighty in writing, for thou hast made all this people that they could speak much because of the Holy Ghost which thou hast given them. And thou hast made us that we could write but little because of the awkwardness of our hands. See the phrase that keeps coming up? Thou hast made, thou hast not made, thou hast made, thou hast made, thou hast not made. He's recognizing God's hand behind both what he has and what he doesn't have both his strengths and his weaknesses. And I think it's important for us to see God behind both. You've blessed me in this area of my life. You haven't blessed me in this other. And I need to accept your will in both cases. Perhaps credit myself a little less for the things I do well and blame myself a little less for the things that I do poorly. 
In terms of talents, okay, I'm not talking about temptation and sin. We'll see some of that a little bit later. But you gave this gift to that person and this gift to the other. It will be Moroni, by the way, in chapter 10 in a couple of weeks to discuss the spiritual gifts, some of which I'm sure he knew he had and others he knew that he didn't. But it's interesting the specifics here of what have you made us and what haven't you made us. When it comes to verbal communication, the blessing was there. When it came to written communication, he felt like it wasn't. There's been some fascinating research done on the difference between orality, the spoken, and literacy, the written, and the pros and cons, the strengths and weaknesses of each. Walter Ong is probably the scholar most famous for this, and he's written about the difference between speech and writing, between oral cultures and scribal cultures. And I loved what he described when it came to sound. I'm a book guy. I love to read. I'm I'm a visual learner. And so I've always loved books. I surround myself with them. And it gives me a chance to really pour over language and, and phrasing and words. You've probably gotten a sense of that through these videos. But as a teacher who relies upon speech, I've loved what I've learned from Professor Ong about the difference between these two forms of communication. The spoken versus the written is like spontaneous experience compared to ongoing intellectual study. When it's spoken word, you're in the moment. You're surrounded by that sound. It's, it's happening as, you, as you're going along. You can't go back because you're caught up in the next sentence. Whereas written, you can stop and pour over every word. You can draw parallels and connections and see difference over time. You get a sense of what's been said in the past and compare it to what's being said in the present. Spoken is more subjective and written seems to be more objective. There is participation versus distance, communion versus solitude, unity versus isolation, harmonization versus dissection, a living present in the spoken word versus a dead past in the written. The spoken word is like an ongoing conversation, whereas the written word is more like fixed and final thought. And we know which one Moroni preferred. Walter Ong compared it to pressing living flowers to death between the pages of printed books. And Moroni felt crushed by having to confine himself to print. When you're speaking, especially by the power of the Holy Ghost, you're in that moment. You're just caught up in the spirit of this. Have you ever had a conversation where it was like, oh, you had to be there? Or times where you were at a fireside or a general conference and it just, you were moved powerfully by the Spirit. And then later you went and you reread the words and it was like, something's missing here. Now again, I love the written word, but there is power in the spoken. The great LDS historian Richard Bushman put it this way about these verses. Moroni spoke for every writer in every age, but most poignantly for the prophets who had to bridge the gulf between divine vision and human language. Again, taking heaven down to earth, something always seems to get lost in translation. At least it did for Moroni, as he was feeling, especially as compared to what he'd just read from the brother of Jared. Remember what he said back in Ether 4, verse 4? That there never were greater things made manifest than those which were made manifest unto the brother of Jared. So the brother of Jared wrote about the most incredible subject matter, 
but he also seemed to have the most incredible spiritual gifts for being able to put that subject matter down on the page. The way the Moroni describes it here in chapter 12, middle of verse 24, Behold, thou hast not made us mighty in writing like unto the brother of Jared. For thou madest him that the things which he wrote were mighty even as thou art unto the overpowering of man to read them. If that verse doesn't make you excited for the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, I don't know what would. You know how sometimes you look at the back of a book and it's got some words about, you know, high praise for this volume? It's like gripping, page turner. Well, on the back of the sealed portion, it would say, as mighty as God is, overpowering of man to read them. Moroni. He's read them. He's sealed them. And he's blown away by them. And compared to that, I'm nothing. Compared to the sealed portion, the unsealed portion will seem laughable, at least in the Gentiles' eyes. That, by the way, also makes me more and more excited for the sealed portion. Because honestly, I'm blown away by the power of the language, the written language of the Book of Mormon. Spiritually speaking, I believe, I testify that it is Scripture, the Word of God. But even just intellectually, I consider it a literary masterpiece. It's incredible. I hope you've gotten a sense of that. But I do understand where Moroni is coming from. What I do as compared to what he can do, it pales in comparison. Verse 25, Moroni then returns to that wrestle between the written and the spoken. Thou hast also made our words powerful and great, even that we cannot write them. How do you reduce heaven to human language? It just can't be done. We cannot write them. Wherefore, when we write, we behold our weakness. We stumble because of the placing of our words. You sometimes get a sense of that when you see movies or things of, of an author with writer's block and kind of head in their hands and they're pulling out their hair and they're surrounded by wadded up pieces of paper next to an overflowing trash can. I just can't put down on paper what's in my mind or in my heart. I get a sense here that if golden plates could have been crumpled up into a wad and thrown into the wastebasket, Moroni would have done it. I fear lest the Gentiles shall mock at our words. And remember, as Jesus taught and as Mormon taught and Moroni gets it, the Book of Mormon is going to have to pass through the Gentiles on the way back to the remnant of the house of Israel. And if they don't see it for what it is, if they can't recognize its spiritual worth, then this whole scriptural enterprise that the gathering of Israel is riding on, it's not going to happen. Now, do you understand why Moroni is having this faith crisis? this trial of his own faith at the end of his tour of the Faith Hall of Fame. I cannot be the weak link in the chain. And I'm not good enough to do justice to these words. Now in verse 26, the Lord begins to reassure Moroni. And I love how he does it. Verse 26, he speaks unto him and says, first of all, fools mock, but they shall mourn. So he does acknowledge what Moroni was worried about. I fear the Gentiles will mock at these things. And like I said, historically, they did, and they still do. The great American humorist Mark Twain called the Book of Mormon chloroform in print. In fact, he may have had fun with the Book of Ether, since Ether in his day was something along the lines of that kind of chloroform. Ether as a gas that could put you to sleep. 
Mark Twain was the one who joked and said, oh, if you took out all the end it came to passes, the Book of Mormon would just be a pamphlet. Gentiles began mocking the Book of Mormon even before it rolled off of E.B. Grandin's press. And we've had a more recent Tony Award-winning musical in Broadway that's been mocking things in horrific ways. There's no denying that's happened. And the Lord doesn't deny it. He simply says, oh yes, they'll mock. But it says more about them than about the thing that they are mocking. Fools mock, but they shall mourn. And then this all-important reassurance. My grace is sufficient for the meek, that they shall take no advantage of your weakness. I love that the Lord is saying that, that meekness makes up for weakness. The two are not synonymous, as the world might say. In fact, they're antithetical, that meekness makes up for weakness. It compensates for it. It protects against it. And I think he's speaking not only to Moroni, who needs to be meek in this situation and trust in the grace of God, but also all of us later readers of the Book of Mormon, that if we are meek and humble as we approach God's word, then it will be powerful to us, just as the Lord promises. So if you are meek, you won't worry about being mocked. Or if you are meek, you would never be the one to mock others. Either way, there's no advantage taken over weakness. It's as if the Lord is reassuring him there in 26. Moroni, the Book of Mormon's going to be fine. Don't lose any sleep over it. I got this thing. These are my words. In fact, that's how the Lord refers to them in section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants. When he's talking about the loss of the 116 pages and what the Lord's enemies are trying to do with the word. And the Lord doesn't just call it the Book of Mormon. He keeps referring to it as my words. There's ownership there. There's a sense behind those possessive pronouns of, I got this thing. These are my words. And I'm going to make sure they don't fall flat when they emerge from the press. My grace is sufficient for the meek. And while it might seem that it's not sufficient for the prideful, well, they need to humble themselves if they're ever going to get benefit from this to begin with. You get a sense of this, at least the more positive approach, from Nephi, first Nephi in the Book of Mormon. It's almost like, Moroni, this is where you need to get. Okay? He says at the end of his book, I know that the Lord God will consecrate my prayers for the gain of my people. And the words which I have written in weakness... You see, Moroni, I recognize that in myself too. But I know this because of my faith in Christ. The words which I have written in weakness will be made strong unto them. Even closer to the end of his writings, Nephi says this. And it's almost repeated in how Moroni ended things at the end of the Book of Mormon. And if they are not the words of Christ, Nephi says, judge ye. So I'll leave them in Christ's capable hands. And the Lord will take care of it. Christ will show unto you with power and great glory that they are his words. There's the possessive pronoun again. At the last day. And you and I shall stand face to face before his bar. Moroni said the same thing to us. And ye shall know that I have been commanded of him to write these things. And then catch the last phrase. Notwithstanding my weakness. I'm human. I'm mortal. Of course, my fingerprints on the book might get in the way for some people to see the fingerprints of God, but they're all over the book too. When Joseph of Egypt gives us his prophecy of Joseph of Palmyra, he says, out of weakness he shall be made strong. 
And the same could be said of the book that he was called to translate. Of that book, that same Joseph of Egypt said this, And they shall cry from the dust, yea, even repentance unto their brethren, even after many generations have gone by them. And it shall come to pass that their cry shall go, even according to the simpleness of their words. Sometimes that kindergarten vocabulary of a meek missionary does more good and has more power than anything a university professor could say. Because of their faith, their words shall proceed forth out of my mouth unto their brethren who are the fruit of thy loins. And the weakness of their words, I admit it's there, will I make strong in their faith. That has to be there too. Unto the remembering of my covenant which I have made unto thy fathers. You see that thread run throughout the Book of Mormon? Weakness, fine, but strength as well. A strength that will be undetectable to the prideful, but so tangible to the meek. The Book of Mormon will be one of those things that helps sift out those two groups. The prideful versus the meek. The tares versus the wheat. Nephi admits it way back in 1 Nephi 6. This book won't mean much to those who care too much for the things of the world. But for those who care about the things of God, this book will be the ultimate blessing. The Book of Mormon thus becomes the barometer for our own spirituality. As President Benson used to say, it's not the book that's on trial. We are. So will we mock and mourn? Or will we be meek and recognize God's grace as the space that human weakness leaves is infused with the power of God. That's the power of what God is offering here for the Book of Mormon, for the efforts of these prophets and the efforts of you and me anytime we try to convey the truths of God to other people. If you'll forgive me for being a little personal here, but a little time before I began this YouTube channel, I was approached by some people at Deseret Book and asked if I would film a few little lessons to try to help reassure people that questions are welcome in the church. And because I feel so strongly about that, I agreed to do it. That was the first time I'd ever been filmed doing anything, really, at least for, for outside consumption. And I felt like I was a train wreck. Honestly, afterwards, I, I texted those that were in charge of the project and said, hey, I'm sorry, if you aren't able to find enough usable footage and just need to scrap the whole thing, I promise it won't hurt my feelings. I'm so sorry that I was the weak link in the chain. I totally felt the way Moroni felt here. People are going to mock at my weakness. God has made me mighty in teaching, I felt, and all glory to him. But that verbal, that spoken communication, that in-the-moment experience in a classroom, it's powerful. And I felt like it was completely missing when it was just me and a camera and a few people behind it. I joked with them and said, I'm so sorry that when my brain and a camera are in the same room, only one of them is on at a time. And yet, know what they kept saying to me? Every time, reassurance, reassurance, reassurance. Oh, you'll be amazed at what happens in the editing room. Post-production, the miracles take place. And I thought, well, good luck turning that sow's ear into a silk purse. I can only imagine what actors in Hollywood must feel when they've got green screen behind them and they're just on a soundstage somewhere and they're acting as well as they can, but thinking, if all people saw was this, with no CGI, with no soundtrack, 
if you've ever seen like a director's cut or a making of kind of a thing, and you're like, wow, how did this ever become a blockbuster? Well, it's as if God is the director here, reassuring Moroni. You'll be amazed at what happens in post-production. When the same spirit you feel when you are speaking my words will come through the page like a voice from the dust. Maybe that's why the Book of Mormon keeps referring to itself like that. That in a way, it still will be spoken unto us. We'll be in the moment, surrounded by the sound of these past prophets, hearing King Benjamin from his tower, listening to the Lord at Bountiful, letting Moroni speak to us the way he always wanted, removing the Holy Ghost from our scripture study. is like pulling away the CGI and turning off the soundtrack in a movie. It's being in a stale and sterile soundstage. But when the Spirit comes, it breathes life into these words. And the meek who are open to that Spirit take no advantage of what might be considered elsewhere as weakness. Now, all of that leads up to verse 27, which I hope you've been anticipating. It's one of the great passages in all of Scripture. You're probably well familiar with it, but do you see it in context now? In the middle of Moroni's identity crisis, his worry over his own inadequacy, verse 27, the Lord says to him and to any of us who feel inadequate because of our own weakness, if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. Now take both of those phrases one by one. Let's start with the second one. I will show unto them their weakness. Show us as if it were invisible to us before. It wasn't to Moroni, but sometimes it is to us. And one of the things the Lord wants to do is show us our weakness. Doctrine and Covenant 66, he says, Repent of those things which are not pleasing in my sight, saith the Lord, for the Lord will show them unto you. Look a little closer. There are yet cracks in your character, and the Lord wants to bring them out into the open, visible, so we can begin working on them together. In the book of Job, he asks God for that clearer sight. He says, That which I see not, teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. I just don't, I can't see my flaws. I don't know where I need to work. That wasn't pride saying they didn't exist. That was meekness saying, help me see them. And the Lord does, but notice when he does it. If men come unto me, and that's an if, not a when. If you'll come, then I'll show you your weakness. Our weaknesses appear in relation to our proximity to Jesus. And the closer we come to him, the larger loom before us what used to be very small or insignificant sins. You see, from a distance, when I was very far away, that thing that was right up next to him seemed very minor. Surely he'll excuse me of those little things. But if the Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, well, the closer I come to him, the larger those things loom. I remember years ago teaching seminary, and the first time I was going to teach the Book of Mormon, I wanted my classroom to be kind of an immersive experience for my students. I wanted them to be living Lehi's dream, and so I reproduced it upon the wall. The tree of life was Jesus 
almost a life-size printout of him that I laminated and put on the wall with an iron rod that led to him, which was the Word of God. It was a scripture printed out like 20 feet long. And that iron rod, the Word of God, literally brought them to the tree, the love of God, which is Jesus. I put a great and spacious building there, but I wanted the mists of darkness to be a little bit more interactive as well. So I brainstormed as many sins as I could possibly think of. And I printed them out on these little cards and laminated all of those and stuck them all over that wall. And I kind of had some fun with it where I put the most grievous sins the furthest away from Jesus. And more minor ones were a little bit closer to him. And I actually caught my students off. And it was always fun to watch them before class started or after it ended. And they'd just be scanning that wall and trying to see sins that they hadn't noticed before. And the most enterprising among them would even change their, their relative order sometimes. They're like, what? This thing's not as bad as that thing. And they'd switch them. Like eating fruit out of season. I don't even know if that's a sin. But if it is, it's really close to Jesus, I assume. Whereas others, more obvious, more grave sins, were the ones that were farthest away. But it was interesting about this was recognizing, what is, what's the sin that keeps me from Jesus? Well, right now, it's my largest one. It is halting my progression from him. And here I am standing behind this biggest sin. That's why it's often been said, what's the most important commandment? Whichever one you're not living right now. Whichever one is halting your progress back to God. Well, as soon as I repent of that, what can I do? I can progress forward in my journey until I bump up against the next biggest sin. And then I repent of that and then can continue progressing until I bump up against the next biggest sin and so on and so on. Well, again, from this distance, I can't even see the path ahead. It's all, my view is blocked by this sin that I'm grappling with. But if I were to eliminate all of those and see the sins, the, the tiny mistakes that are closest to him, like I said, they wouldn't even bother me from here. But as I come unto him, I mean, you could take a three by five card and from a hundred yards away, you don't even notice it, but get up right next to the three by five card and it could literally block your entire view. And so... If I come unto him, and as I come unto him, I will see my weakness. Often it's a recognition of our more small errors and sins that don't mark how bad we are, but in many ways mark how good we are, because we finally notice those things. Did you sense that happen to you, perhaps, on your mission? And you came home, and you were just different, and you were calling your parents to repentance for things that, you didn't, that didn't phase you at all beforehand? You're like, how could you watch that movie? And they're like, oh, it was your favorite movie like two years ago. We didn't even like it. We just thought, welcome home. I thought you'd like to see it again. But no, I'm not who I used to be. I'm closer to Jesus than I was two years ago. I'm more bothered now by things that back then weren't even on my radar. Isaiah was probably a really good guy. But if you read Isaiah 6, it's when he's brought into God's presence in this vision, that he realizes, I am a man of unclean lips. How could I possibly speak for thee? Simon Peter was the same character right before and right after this miraculous catch of fish. But before it happened, it didn't seem to faze him that Jesus was on his boat. He just needs a place to stand so he can address the people on the shore. But once he recognizes who Jesus is, once he has come unto the Christ, what does he say? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
no more sinful than he was a couple of minutes before, but he's seeing his sinfulness in ways he hadn't recognized earlier. He was coming unto Christ. What's Moses say after his encounter with God? Now I see that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. I didn't even see my weakness until I had spent time with strength personified. This, by the way, is the most powerful way to recognize our reliance upon Christ. I have had students over the years sometimes worry that, well, the people who really seem to love Jesus are the ones who have sinned the most and realized how much they need him. They recognize the distance between them and God. And as a result, they want to bridge that distance. Whereas sometimes the good kids that have never sinned grievously don't really recognize their reliance on the Lord. They love him as their teacher or their example, their guide, but don't really love him as their savior because they haven't realized that they've needed saving. And do you see the danger of that? Because some might think, oh, then I probably ought to sin, so I'll love him more. No, just keep coming into Christ and you'll realize just how far away from him you are in terms of his perfection and our imperfection. We don't have to dig a pit to recognize our distance from God. Just come as close as you can to the pedestal. And once you get there, you will look up and see how much infinitely above you the Savior is. You will feel weak next to that towering pedestal upon which the Savior stands. It makes it all the more humbling that he would reach down to us and want to lift us to his level. The Lord then teaches Moroni this beautiful principle I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. Moroni, you kept talking about I've made them this and I made them this. I made you mighty here, but didn't make you mighty here. Well, I give. You see that weakness is a gift from God. And it's a gift that is meant to help us become humble, which is one of God's ultimate goals. Remember, it's the meek that don't take advantage of others' weakness. And notice also that it's weakness singular. Later in this verse, we'll see weakness plural, or as he says, weak things. But weakness in the singular is simply our human nature, our fallenness, our humanity, which, if recognized, will teach us of our need for God. I don't know if Joseph Smith even recognized how spot on he was when he described himself in Joseph Smith history with both the plural and the singular form of this idea. When he's talking about his imperfect adolescence, he says this, I frequently fell into many foolish errors, there's plural, and displayed the weakness of youth, singular, and the foibles of human nature. There we're back to the plural. But then he goes on to say, I often felt condemned for my weakness, singular, and imperfections, plural. Is there a difference between weakness and weaknesses? I think so. I remember early on in our marriage, my wife was lamenting her own weaknesses, her lack of perfection. I just remember reassuring her and saying, honey, I do see weakness in you, but I have a hard time noticing any weaknesses that have come as a result. You're human, like we all are. We can't do everything on our own as well as we would want. But that is just human weakness, and that's not going to change. 
The worry is when our weakness starts spinning off weaknesses in which we indulge. When our weakness spawns imperfections that we don't want to repent of. But it's our weakness that will never go away. Even as we repent of those weaknesses, it's our weakness, our distance from God, our humanity, that helps us recognize how much we need Him. And it's only that that's going to help us repent of and change the weaknesses that have come as a result. The Lord speaks often and mercifully of weakness in the singular. Doctrine and Covenants 38, 14. I will be merciful unto your weakness, singular. Even when he can't look upon our sins with any degree of allowance, he can still be merciful because he recognizes our weakness. That's what condescension in Christ's case came down to. Christ felt he put upon himself human weakness. He just never gave in to any human weaknesses. Sense the difference? Later in the Doctrine and Covenants, 62 verse 1, he introduces himself as Jesus Christ, your advocate, who knoweth the weakness of man. And as a result, he knows how to succor them who are tempted to give in to weaknesses. In Jacob 4, verse 7, it's about as close to what Moroni teaches us here as you can get. Jacob says, The Lord God showeth us our weakness, that we may know that it is by his grace and his great condescensions unto the children of men that we have power to do these things. I love that. Weakness as a gift to introduce us to the need for grace. No wonder he shows us our weakness as we come unto him. It keeps us coming. It keeps us coming unto him for more, for more weaknesses to recognize and more grace to rely on. Nephi got it clearly. He says in 1 Nephi 19.6, And now if I do err, even did they err of old, not that I would excuse myself because of other men, but because of the weakness, singular, which is in me, according to the flesh, I would excuse myself. I do just have to acknowledge my humanity. That's not to say my depravity. There's a difference here. We don't believe in original sin, but we do believe in original weakness. And I think that it's important that we acknowledge our weakness, even as we continue to work upon our imperfections. In both cases, what's the solution? The Lord's grace. My grace is sufficient. It's enough. It's more than enough to compensate for your weakness. Between the two of us, I promise we will always be strong. It's only on your own that you're left with your weakness. My grace is sufficient for all men. But here's the caveat there. All men that humble themselves before me. His grace is not sufficient for the prideful because they'll never accept it. But if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me. Now we're back to the subject of Ether chapter 12. Faith in me. You can't see it yet. You can't see his strength. You can't see your own. You can only see your weakness. But if you see that and humble yourself as a result and come unto me and have faith in me, then what will happen? Then will I make weak things, there's the plural, become strong unto them. The weakness itself won't change, but the weak things that have come as a result will be changed into strengths. It's amazing what Christ's sufficient grace can do in those circumstances.
Paul understood this perfectly. And in a conversation that he had with God in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, notice both parts. My grace is sufficient for thee, the Lord says, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. It's your humanity that gives space for my divinity. It's your weakness that allows room for my strength to come in. And so how does Paul respond to that? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The context of that verse, by the way, is in the middle of that unanswered prayer where he keeps pleading with the Lord to remove this thorn from my flesh. Help me be better than I am. Help me overcome my human weakness. And that's when the Lord says, no, 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 no. Don't you see weakness is a gift? It's turned you to me. And as long as it keeps turning you to me, then I will turn weak things into strengths. I never want you to outgrow me or get to a point where you don't rely upon our relationship. So allow that weakness to stay and simply start working on your weaknesses, those imperfections. I will make you strong. But on your own, you'll never change a weak thing into something strong. You simply don't have the strength to do it. Don't you remember that list we saw in the Faith Hall of Fame from Hebrews chapter 11? That long list of things that happen to people who exercise faith in Christ. One of the most applicable to this part of the conversation, this segment of the tour, out of weakness were made strong. It's exactly what is happening here for Moroni. By the way, I won't take the time to do it here because I've already done it elsewhere. But the idea of turning weak things into strengths is such a profound principle, especially when you tie it in with its companion principle that Elder Dallin H. Oaks taught years ago, that your strength can become your downfall. You see how it could go in both ways? Weak things can be made strong, but your strength can become your downfall, which suggests, to my mind at least, that there is a, an inherent relationship between strengths and weaknesses. Not just a matter of, oh, I'm strong in these things and I'm weak at these things. It's like, no, this specific attribute both has a strong manifestation and a weak manifestation. I call them coins that have a head, there's the positive, and a tail, that's the negative. Now, I taught this principle back in the video for Alma chapter 38, because I don't think I've ever seen a better place to teach it than in Alma's conversation with his oft-forgotten son, Shablon. That chapter only has 15 verses, but I've never seen a better example of a place to teach the idea of attributes as coins with heads and tails, and those coins having complementary coins with their own heads and tails that help keep both sides heads up. That's the idea of proving contraries. Contraries are simply complementary coins that stay heads up and keep either coin from flipping to their tails. If that's confusing to you, or if it's just intriguing to you, then please go back and rewatch the video for Alma chapter 38. It's called Strengths and Weaknesses, and it describes this principle as well as I could. But back to Ether 12, move forward to verse 28, and you'll see the Lord finish his reassurance to Moroni. Behold, I will show unto the Gentiles their weakness. If they're looking for weaknesses, oh, there's plenty for them to see. It won't be in the Book of Mormon. It'll be in themselves. At least if they're meek, they'll recognize that. 
And remember, Jesus is very gifted at helping people see their own weaknesses instead of the weaknesses of others. Just ask those who brought the woman taken in adultery and cast her at Jesus' feet. They were condemned by their own conscience, and no stones were thrown. Meek Gentiles, if they turn to God, will not see the weakness of the Book of Mormon. They will see the weakness inherent in themselves. And then what will the Lord show them? I will show unto them that faith, hope, and charity bringeth unto me the fountain of all righteousness. That's my goal for them, those Gentiles. It's my goal for you, remnant of the house of Israel. Now by verse 29, the Lord's reassurance worked. I, Moroni, having heard these words, was comforted. And I said, O Lord, thy righteous will be done, for I know that thou workest unto the children of men according to their faith. I love Moroni's recognition there. I may not have faith in my own works, but I do have faith in my faith. You're right, Father. In my own weakness, the own awkwardness of my hands, I know I can't do it. But it's not my hands that I should be focused on. I'm in thy hands, and there's no awkwardness there at all. I know that you work according to our faith, and I have faith in thee, even when I don't have faith in myself. And again, we shouldn't have faith in ourselves independent of God. We should have faith in ourselves as a result of the grace that is sufficient to make us into something stronger than we would ever otherwise be. When I am weak, then am I strong, Paul says. Moroni is getting that too. He draws upon the examples that he's already seen in his own tour of the Hall of Fame. Verse 30, the brother of Jared said to the Mount Zaran, remove, and it was removed. If he had not had faith, it wouldn't have moved. But it worked after man had faith. And I have to exercise my faith too. The Book of Mormon will then take care of itself. Moroni is passing his own trial of faith as we speak. Verse 31, he mentions those disciples again. The Lord didn't manifest himself unto them until after they had faith. Once they'd obtained and exercised that faith, they spoke in the Lord's name. The Lord showed himself unto them in great power, more power than they could ever muster on their own. Verse 32, Moroni goes on, I also remember that thou hast said that thou hast prepared a house for man, yea, even among the mansions of thy father, in which man might have a more excellent hope. Remember, that's the hope that Ether talked about earlier on in this chapter. Hope for a better world. Hope at the right hand of God. That ultimate hope is exactly what Moroni is talking about here. Wherefore, man must hope, or he cannot receive an inheritance in the place which thou hast prepared. Moroni puts that concept in ultimate terms in 33. Again, I remember that thou hast said that thou hast loved the world, even unto the laying down of thy life for the world, that thou mightest take it again to prepare a place for the children of men. If I can have ultimate hope in that for me, why can't I have proximate hope in the power of the Book of Mormon as it comes forth? I have nothing to worry about. And again, here is where faith, which has turned into hope for Moroni, finally turns into charity for him as well. Just like we saw in verse 4 from Ether. Verse 34, Now I know that this love which thou hast had for the children of men is charity. 
Wherefore, except men shall have charity, they cannot inherit that place which thou hast prepared in the mansions of thy father. See how faith and hope and charity are mutually reinforcing? Almost this spiral upward, heavenward. Again, hold on for Moroni chapter 7, the greatest chapter on faith, hope, and charity in the standard works. He then returns to the thought of the Gentiles in 35. Wherefore, I know by this thing which thou hast said, that if the Gentiles have not charity, Earlier, he was worried about them not having meekness to the point of mocking these things. Well, now he's worried again. What about their charity? If the Gentiles have not charity because of our weakness, that thou wilt prove them and take away their talent, yea, even that which they have received and given to them who shall have more abundantly. In other words, if they won't have charity for your weakness, I'll force them to develop some charity for their own because they'll recognize their own weakness and have to grapple with it somehow. You see the process? Our recognition of weakness leads to humility. Humility leads to faith in Christ's grace. Faith then leads to hope, and hope leads to charity, and charity to patience for the weakness of others. And the cycle continues. Moroni is praying that that cycle will happen for the Gentiles. That's why in verse 36, I prayed unto the Lord that he would give unto the Gentiles grace, that they might have charity. Such a beautiful prayer. By the way, it was that same prayer that Joseph and Hiram offered to the Lord on their way to Carthage, before leaving Nauvoo for Carthage. That last long ride. Hiram opened to Ether chapter 12, these verses, and read them and turned down the page upon them. He too was praying that the Gentiles he was about to face might have grace in hopes that they might have charity. If they could simply recognize their own weakness, their own reliance upon the Lord, wouldn't they see in us humble servants that are trying to rely upon the Lord too, notwithstanding our weakness? Please give them grace, Father. Please let them have charity for us. But then verse 37, the Lord responds to Moroni and to Joseph and Hiram, If they have not charity, it mattereth not unto thee. Thou hast been faithful, wherefore thy garments shall be made clean. And because thou hast seen thy weakness, thou shalt be made strong, even unto the sitting down in the place which I have prepared in the mansions of my father. What a beautiful reassurance. The Lord's been giving Moroni a lot of those in this chapter. But to him, to Joseph and Hiram, to you and me, regardless of other people's reactions, they may still mock at your weakness. So be it. Please be faithful. Rely on my grace. It is sufficient for anyone who will come unto me. So don't worry about those who don't. Just make sure that you do. It's the only way that your garments will be free of blood. You don't have to worry about the garments of others. Verse 38, by the way, is Moroni bidding us farewell. But that verse as well was one that Hiram was quoting that morning. When John Taylor wrote what we could consider a eulogy for the prophet and the patriarch, Doctrine and Covenants 135, he mentions this verse as well with the previous two. So picture not just Moroni saying this to us, picture Joseph and Hiram saying it to us as well. And now I, Moroni, and Joseph, and Hiram, bid farewell unto the Gentiles, both those who mock 
and those who are meek. Yea, and also unto my brethren, whom I love, until we shall meet before the judgment seat of Christ, where all men shall know that my garments are not spotted with your blood. Moroni did his work. Joseph and Hiram did theirs. And through them, the Lord did his work, which he made strong in spite of their weakness. Moroni then finishes this chapter. Then shall ye know that I have seen Jesus. I came unto him. How else do you think I saw my own weaknesses so clearly? And that he hath talked with me face to face. And that he told me, I love this phrase, in plain humility. How can we not be meek with the Lord of meekness himself? How can we not be humble when he who knows all things can speak unto us in plain humility? No wonder he understands our weakness. He's willing to condescend to it. No wonder he speaks unto man according to their language, after their own weakness, so that we can understand. The Lord himself speaks in plain humility, even as a man telleth another in our own language concerning these things. And then in 40, Moroni says, and only a few have I written because of my weakness in writing. It's like, Moroni, we just talked about this. You don't have to keep excusing yourself because of your weakness. I know you couldn't write at all. It's okay. What you've written is sufficient, especially since my grace is. Moroni, I don't want to hear the word weakness come out of your mouth anymore. Okay? Trust me. I, we can do this together. And with that reassurance, he says to each of us in verse 41, And now I would commend you to seek this Jesus of whom the prophets and apostles have written, from Lehi all the way down to Moroni, from the brother of Jared to Ether himself. They have taught and testified of this Jesus. So seek him. Why? So that the grace of God the Father and also the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost, the entire Godhead, offering you their collective grace, if you'll come, if you'll seek him, grace isn't just in the finding, it's in the searching. It's not just found at the destination. It's found all along the way. If we will seek this Jesus, then that divine grace, which bears record of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, it will be and it will abide in us forever. Amen. What a testament from Moroni. This is his second of three attempts to finish his message to us. Mormon chapter 9 was his first attempt. Moroni chapter 10 will be his third. He still needs to get back to abridging Ether's history, and he will in 13, 14, and 15. But here, as he closes off chapter 12, is his second try. And how does he do it? By pointing us to Jesus. Here, he seems to be echoing the way that his old world counterpart concluded his tour of the Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. Specifically at the Sarah exhibit, it says that she had faith in these impossible promises because she judged him faithful who had promised. It wasn't faith alone. It was faith in him she judged faithful. It was faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Moroni is commending us to seek him. May I conclude this tour 
of the Hall of Fame from the New World with what was said right after you exit the one in the old. Hebrews 11 is followed by Hebrews 12, which starts with this beautiful phrase. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. That's what halls of fame are. A chance for you to be encompassed about with a cloud of witnesses. People that did all that was needed to make it to Canton, to get to Cooperstown, to be inducted into a hall of fame. And honestly, if you ever go through that and just see all these displays, it makes you want to be a better athlete or a better musician. It just, oh, there's your dreams. I want to be here someday. And whether you are encompassed about by the biblical cloud or the Book of Mormon cloud we just spent time with in Ether chapter 12, what's the result that's supposed to come from it? Once you see yourself amidst that cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It's his statue that we see once we've exited the Hall of Fame. Realizing that everything that we saw before on this tour was pointing to him. He is the author. He started it. He is the finisher. He will end it. He is the source and the substance of our faith. And if it is by faith that we are justified, that's only because our faith in Christ is always justified. So enjoy the tour. Look to Abraham and Sarah. Look to Moses and Rahab. In the Book of Mormon, look to Alma and Amulek. Look to Nephi and Lehi. But more than anything, look to Christ. Come unto him. No matter how worried we might be over our own weakness, it was a gift to point you back to him. And his grace is sufficient if only we will come. <laughs>